Welcome to the Cochrane Trainees Podcast, brought to you by Cochrane UK, inspiring medical and dental trainees to engage in evidence. Cochrane UK, trusted evidence, informed decisions, better health. This podcast is part of a series of conversations. To catch up and get the latest episode, go to uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees. Uh, hello, my name is Rachel. I'm from the Cochrane UK Training Committee, and I'm here with Professor Williams from the Centre of Evidence-Based Dermatologies. Nice Hi, to Rachel. Meet you. Likewise. <laughs> um, so, I suppose uh, one of the first questions I'd like to ask you about is how did you get into research in the first place, and what inspired you to get involved with in it? I think it was um, I kept seeing the same old conditions for skin yeah. disease, and became very frustrated with. Um, the treatments. I, I, I think I had doubts mm. about some of the rituals we perform. Say, for example, freezing warts. And uh, many of my friends were interested in rare diseases, but for me, I liked common diseases, especially trying to deal with common things well. And um, cryotherapy, we all did it. You know, we had the liquid nitrogen out, or we froze, and sometimes it would bring tears to the children's eyes, but we did it every two weeks. Sometimes the nurses did it. And then, of course, the, the Cochrane Review suggested, it dared to ask the question, well, are we doing any good? And compared with, for example, for at least for hand wash, topical salicylic acid, which families can do at home, it wasn't much better. <laughs> So, so that for me was a real eye-opener and I, I think what stimulated me to get involved in research was I wasn't content in just practicing what had always been practiced for the next 40 years of my life. I kept asking myself, well, what causes that skin disease? How long does it last? Uh, why has that um, boy got it but not his sister? What is the best treatment or best, better said, how can it be prevented? All these things... Uh, bothered me and I think that was the driver, uh, my main driver for research. Was there ever a, a particular patient that was important to you when you were starting out? Um, well, there have been lots of individual patients who have influenced me along the way. So there was one gentleman, for example, when I was doing my basic training in dermatology at King's College Hospital. I even remember his name, but I won't say it now. And um, he had this rare condition called yellow nail syndrome, characterized by very thick, slow-growing nails. And you think, well, that doesn't cause him much morbidity, but actually he was very ashamed of the appearance of his nails and there were mechanical things like he educated me that he couldn't pick up coins yeah. for example so I learned things from him and uh, I was um, encouraged he wanted to do something and we knew that oral vitamin E for example could help this condition and we thought of using topical vitamin E and uh, he was a real partner in the research design as well as the participant and even before I knew much about um, clinical trials, I think randomization was in my blood. So I randomized his nails to <laughs> 10 nails. And Ian Chalmers, I think, cites this on the, um, uh, the history of clinical trials. But it, it was an example of uh, randomizing his nails to either active treatment or the vehicle alone. And uh, there did appear to be an effect there. Um, but that, there was a, that's a memorable um, uh, example of how a patient actually influenced me in in doing that research and and it wasn't just being um, 
having the research done upon him. He was an active participant in the designing uh, of the research. So it was a real co-creation, if you like, and uh, co-production of research, which is, has been always easy for me, even before patient and public involvement was fashionable in research. It always came naturally to me to... Uh, Oh, can I give you another example? Oh, yes. Another example. <laughs> and that was at King's College. I was, um, my boss had asked me to um, review all of the cases of uh, malignant melanoma seen over the last 20 years at King's College. You know, it's a serious condition. Yes. If caught early, you can cure people, uh, but it can be fatal. And um, when I was going through all these notes, you know, 220 cases and reviewing the histology, one of the sets of notes. Uh, when I opened it, it says, Pas uh, 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 the patient commented that the dog sniffed at the lesion. Her dog sniffed oh, at I the see. lesion on her leg. Oh, sorry, a melanoma-seeking dog. And, and I, I thought of, well, I dismissed it, I laughed it off, but something bothered me that evening. So I was driving back, and next day I phoned her up and I heard the story. And the story was that this dog had been... Uh, repeatedly sniffing only at this lesion, not other lesions, even through tights. And the last straw for the patient was when the dog tried to bite it on one occasion. And that made the patient go and see her GP. GP referred her to us, and it was a melanoma. And it was at a thin and curable stage. So that dog literally saved that woman's life. But that, that was the first sort of um, if you like, trigger of the now expanding science of olfaction in cancer detection, whether it's done by artificial noses, uh, and there's been a recent study, for example, of dogs being able to train dogs to discriminate between skin cancer and non-skin cancer. So it has, it, it, even though it was just a case report in the Lancet, I think it was 1989. Uh, there were many other case reports that then followed. It, it's a memorable patient because it was that patient story that sparked off a scientific thought, which was very plausible because a dog's brain is mainly smell. Yeah. And it's plausible. Why shouldn't cancer that produces aberrant proteins produce an abnormal smell that could be detected either by a very sensitive animal or indeed some form of artificial uh, detection of the volatile compound? So there's another example of a, a patient that influenced me greatly. That's really interesting. Is, it, is that a thing that's happening now? With yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, at the time, it created massive media because we had dogs saving lives, you know. Yes, yes. Uh, but it was... Uh, what I call futile um, publicity for, a, you know, every two or three years uh, the, the people would fly over, I was an Arthur C. Clarke's mysterious world and all these things, but I was very frustrated because nobody ever offered any money for serious research. Yes. They were after sensation and stories. But um, I'm, I'm convinced that it did eventually spark off, despite that media hype, I'm, I'm convinced it did eventually spark off serious people so there was a study on bladder cancer in the BMJ a long time ago. We did one then on prostate cancer, which w was not very convincing, but we developed the methodology for uh, canine detection of cancer. And then there's been this recent one on skin cancer that looks pretty promising. Um, so, so the field has yeah. taken off and, uh, and may well have a, a clinical utility eventually. That's really interesting, the one patient. Oh, yes. So essentially... Well, it was, yeah. It was one patient, yeah. Hmm. One patient story. on Twitter at Cochrane UK and join the conversation with hashtag Cochrane Trainees.
Cochrane UK, trusted evidence, informed decisions, better health. Did you, um, when you first started out in research, was it a difficult transition to make? Or did you, what sort of barriers did you come across? Because I think a lot of, uh, a lot of trainees feel that there's, I suppose, um, it's quite difficult to produce good quality research. Yes, I, I think um, it is difficult unless you have a training fellowship. I think, yeah. I think for me, the, the, the real accelerator was uh, being lucky enough to get a Wellcome Trust Clinical Epidemiology Fellowship, yeah. and that allowed me to do an MSc in Clinical Epidemiology with some great teachers, mm -hmm. and they really changed my way of thinking, mm -hmm. thinking of populations, not individuals. So I, I think, you know, if you do want to do research, you, you do need to get uh, training and research skills you, before you go and do your PhD or whatever. I think that is important. Um, I think the other barriers for me were the fact that um, when I was training, research was something that was always done by the universities yes. and it was always done by very clever people and it was all basic science research. It was all about um, mediators of inflammation and genetics and I was a people person and I always felt rather stupid amongst the, you know, the, yes. the, pro <laughs> the proper scientists. And it would have been very difficult for me, for example, with my research career, because I went the other way. Everyone was going in that way, going to the States, learning some sophisticated technique and bringing it back. But I was interested in people research, and very, very few people in dermatology were interested in that. Um, and it would have been very difficult for me to fit into one of the conventional academic departments in the country. Yeah. And that's why I ended up at Nottingham. There was no research department there. There were very good clinicians there, but they were looking for research. And that was very difficult starting off yes. because I had nothing there. But I had good role models and leaders, and eventually we built up the Centre of Evidence-Based Dermatology, and you know the story has flown from there. So I think that was uh, a barrier in research as a trainee as well, is, is finding somebody who believed in what I was interested in. I, I did have such a person, Professor Rod Hay, um, who had a real interest in public health dermatology and he said, well look, I will, I will supervise you, I'll support you in this unusual journey and people were telling me it's risky, you know, uh, but he believed in me and supported me and I think uh, finding somebody who could believe in is very important as well. So it's the value of mentorship, I suppose. Mentorship, extremely important. Role models that you can look up for. I think the other thing I'd recommend, and if you are developing an interest that seems a bit odd or not sort of mainstream, is to form your own society. So when I was a trainee, for example, I was aware that even though I worked at in the Institute of Dermatology, St. John's, St. Thomas's Hospital, I was, uh, there were only two of us really interested in population dermatology in there. But I knew somebody in Glasgow was interested, another person in Southampton was interested. So I formed, as a trainee, the British Epidermo Epidemiology Society, Bees. <laughs> and uh, even that was quite a small voice. So then with other colleagues in Europe, we formed the European Dermatoepidemiology Network, even. And even that wasn't big enough, so we formed with colleagues in the US, because there were little pockets of interest in the US, the International Dermatoepidemiology Association idea, and they're still going to this day. So by, by, by forming a group, we exchanged ideas and also had, if you like, 
a, a strength and a voice at meetings. Yeah. Previously at American meetings, you'd find a couple of um, posters maybe down, down near the toilets, you know, <laughs> amongst thousands of posters. But eventually we could lobby and have a presence. We could have our own satellite session and maybe our own keynote speaker. So that's my other piece of advice is, is get together and don't think of your own department or even region to think nationally, forming national journal clubs and doing something creative online as you're doing now. And so what sort of things do you do to support trainees in your own unit? Okay, so I, I, I work in the Centre of Evidence-Based Dermatology, um, which is composed of the editorial base of the Cochrane Skin Group, the UK Dermatology Clinical Trials Network, and uh, information scientists who then spin up that information to a community of users. So when you think of these three cogs working together, Cochrane identifying uncertainties, they are then picked up by the UK Dermatology Trials Network. So all independent research, we don't do any industry research at all. Okay, so it's looking at sort of market failures, cheap drugs, which can still have a big impact on lives. And then once we um, produce that information, it is then spun out. So for example, um, a Cochrane review um, on pemphigoid, this autoimmune blistering condition, uh, mentions that tetracyclines have been used, um, but never evaluated properly. That led then to us getting funding for the blister study, which was a national study recruiting over 50 centres. Hard work, cost a lot, but we were comparing tetracyclines versus oral prednisolone. And we found what we were looking for. In other words, tetracyclines are not quite as effective, but if you're willing to tolerate that slightly less effectiveness mm -hmm. at controlling blisters, it saves lives. It's much safer than giving uh, oral prednisolone to elderly people with comorbidities and that's just come out in the Lancet last week and that's now being spun out to a community of users including the patient support group. So, so, so that, that's briefly a, a, an idea of what the centre of evidence is. Nobody funds us specifically, I mean we are funded by pockets here and there, we have to earn our own, but that's the idea of the, the cogs working together. So how do we support trainees? We, well, first of all we think it's incredibly important and as I you know, mature in my career now, I'm looking much, much more towards succession planning and capacity building. So what we've done for the last, I guess, 12 years is the UK Dermatology Clinical Trials Network, which is now a charity, we um, support um, an annual competition and it started off with uh, specialist registrars in dermatology and they would have to apply to us to say why they wanted this two-year sort of fellowship and, um, uh, and they had to have support from their training program director and their supervisor. So there was buy-in locally and it was a competition. Um, it involved them having uh, coming on our course, our three-day course on getting to grips with evidence-based dermatology. It involved them coming to our steering group meetings to understand how clinical trials are being developed. A visit to the unit for three days to talk to the various groups that were going on there. And then opportunities to get involved with either a Cochrane review or a clinical trial or whatever. And that role then expanded to um, a specialist associate grade uh, doctors, GPs we've expanded it to, uh, and nurses as well, because dermatology obviously traverses all those professions. And um, it's been very, very successful in that the alumni of those first fellowships are now editors 
of, of journals. In other words, they've played prominent roles in promoting. So it's been a good investment for us. So it's a longitudinal. Absolutely. So you have to think of the, the investment in these people, and uh, and they have. And there'll be future, you know, because I'm, I'm convinced the best clinical questions are from those in clinical practice and with patients, of yes. course, rather than just academics sitting in their room. Um, and, and many of these now will become chief investigators, always with methodological support, of course, but they will become their own chief investigators and they are developing very well in that way. And in fact, one of them is a chief investigator of the vitiligo study that we're doing now. So, so, so I'm very pleased with that sort of, you know, and it, it doesn't require a lot of resource on our part, but it's been, it's paid off very well in terms of capacity building, promoting evidence-based practice, and, and a far better way of working with a community rather than me pouring out and pushing information at people who don't want to hear it. Never miss a podcast. Sign up for the Cochrane Trainees Digest at uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees. career and your career trajectory was um, you know you started off as a clinician looking after individual patients and then moved into a more research role looking more population health and now into a sort of supervisory role to that. Do you think that's changed your perspective on how you treat patients or how, what you recommend to them and or even in how you appraise studies and evidence? I think yes is the answer. It's a very good question you ask, and it's one of the great dilemmas, isn't it? Because most research is based on groups of patients. Yes. It's what I call the triumph of the aggregate. <laughs> you know, when you look at a mean value, for example, well, within that mean value, there may be a range of responses from fantastic response. So those are the cases that you see in the Daily Mail, new drug, infliximab yes. psoriasis cured me for five years. Well, that, those are the high responses, but there are some people in that mean distribution who actually get worse, yes. <laughs> and you don't read about them. So, so, so that sort of um, understanding and awareness of how doctors are, are very uh, attentive to the care of an individual patient, um, and whereas researchers of course, they care about individual patients, but they are trying to produce average evidence on very similar patients. So I think that's um, impacted, um, well, in a couple of ways. The first is when I'm explaining um, uh, evidence from a clinical trial to a patient, I will, I will explain that variability of response. And I will also explain to them the magnitude, the average magnitude of the response and seek their judgment um, you know, for example, does a 30% reduction of acne spots or non-inflammatory lesions, which is the typical sort of acne outcome you've seen in trials. Well, I've yet to meet a teenager who is happy with a 30% reduction in inflammatory spots. They want to get clear, please. It may be unrealistic, but that's what they want, and that's very important. That's interesting, isn't it? The difference between um, what perhaps a researcher or clinician might think is a successful result from a treatment Absolutely. and what the patient... Absolutely. What the patient would also judge to be a success. Absolutely. And, and that has particular pertinence to the magnitude of the effect. So, um, you know, I, I'll be talking tomorrow now about a new um, topical treatment for atopic eczema. A huge trial was needed, so uh, uh, comparing it to vehicle, 
okay, which is just the, the, the cream supporting it. And the cream supporting it may have non-specific anti-inflammatory effects or whatever. So, you know, it's not exactly a total placebo. It may be a sort of a semi-active placebo. But um, compared with the vehicle, the number needed to... Well, the overall response rate of success was about a third with this active treatment, which isn't great, <laughs> you know, if I'm trying to sell that to parents who I uh, look after in Nottingham, you know. But the number needed to treat was about 10. In other words, you'd have to treat 10 patients with this cream to see one extra response compared with vehicle, which to me isn't very good at all. So, so I think it has particular relevance to magnitude of effect and how you explain that to patients. And that's, of course, what summary finding tables do, isn't it? They, they explain the absolute effect as well as the relative effect. Are you starting to look more at... Um the sort of psychological effects of, of or, or psychological outcomes after treatment? Oh, absolutely. Oh, if you sat in a dermatology clinic yeah. with me, you'd say, gosh, that's, that was 70% psychology, yeah. Howell. And it is a huge amount of, because if you imagine the skin is, a, is an organ of communication, it, 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 and, you know, and failure of display in, in, in a society which has, uh, you know, when did you last see a picture of somebody with acne in a Sunday Times magazine or something? You know, everybody in the media is spotless, you know, yes. uh, and skin disease is, you know, censored from the public eye. But uh, so it has huge psychological impacts on people. And, and we routinely, for example, in the eczema clinic, apart from recording symptoms in the patient-oriented eczema measure, we also measure dermatology light quality. Mm -hmm how it's affecting their social and school, obviously age-appropriate, but, but it has a huge impact. So if you were to sit in the clinic, you'll see how much tailoring uh, our team would do around the individual. Um, and, and that's very, very important, is to understand what the fears and concerns and expectations of that patient are and tailor the evidence in a way that would fit with their beliefs yeah. and ideas so that they are partners and engage in it. You know, it's a proper shared decision making, but you have to listen to their story and you have to read their skin in order to find the, the formula that they feel comfortable with working with and writing it down in a way that you can explain to them, for example, the concept of induction of remission and maintenance of remission. So I write that in a little, I show them physically on a chart. I say, here we are, this is where you're out of control. Step one is get control. Step two, keep control. They understand it. Yeah. They understand it and they embrace it and they're not fearful of using it if you explain it in that way. So it's, in, it's interesting actually because uh, I suppose traditionally research and Cochrane reviews are about trying to find objective uh, measures of, of outcome, but what you're talking about is very subjective, isn't it? Yes, so I have a view. Um, traditionally, um, I, I remember when I started off doing research um, using, if you like, more patient reported outcomes. Mm. Um, that some of my scientific colleagues would say, ah, oh, this is rubbish, you know, this is, you should be measuring transepidermal water loss or blanching or, um, you know, measuring the amount of thickening on the skin like canification. Something very easy to quantify. Well, but that was it, you see. Actually, when you when you started scratching below the surface, if you pardon the pun, <laughs> you realised that these so-called objective measures 
A, had never been validated, B, had never been tested for repeatability, reliability, C, had never been tested for responsiveness to change, uh, D, were clinically uninterpretable, you know, what does a 12% change <laughs> in like any vacation score mean? Uh, but the most important revelation for me is actually they were very subjective. In other words, you feeling a bit of thick skin here would come up with a 2 plus. I'd feel it and it would come up with a 4 plus, you know. So actually it was, um, you know, the emperor has no, no, yeah, no yeah. clothes because you realise that so-called snobbery, if you like, of the so-called objective measures uh, were not that objective. I mean, some measures are. If you use a machine to measure skin thickness, that is relatively objective, but nobody knows what it means. But many of the so-called objective physical signs that dermatologists had an obsession in measuring were rather subjective. Whereas, um, uh, for example, when I developed international diagnostic criteria for atopic eczema, um, it was mainly the patient's stories like history of a generally dry skin, history of involvement in the skin creases that turned out to be much more powerful discriminators of eczema versus not eczema compared with many many physical and objective signs. So some of the physical signs like um, thinning of the lateral eyebrows and, uh, uh, and uh, periorbital darkening turned out to be useless. And the only sign, the only physical sign that has survived in these UK uh, diagnostic criteria is visible flexural involvement. So, so that's a bit of a revelation that very often uh, the patient reported things are, are not only more appropriate and meaningful, um, but they are very often more valid and repeatable. The only careful thing you have to um, be aware of if designing a clinical trial is that of information bias. So for example, we did a study of uh, iron exchange water softeners for atopic eczema in children, okay? So you can't blind it. Uh, I mean, we tried to blind it with a, a dummy thing, but of course, um, if you have a water softener and you carry on putting soap in the washing machine, it will because the water is so soft, yeah. it produces massive. So you can't blind it. We tested that in the feasibility. Now, in that circumstance where you cannot blind the intervention, and there are parallels here to surgical trials, many surgical interventions you cannot blind. You can blind the outcome assessment. So the outcome assessment was done by an independent nurse, this time just measuring physical science, okay? Not talking yeah. and discussing what treatment you're on. So, so in those sort of circumstances, it's imperative that you're, you do what you can to reduce information or detection bias by having a blinded outcome measure. But it doesn't stop you then measuring a whole raft of other uh, subjective outcomes as well. So I think it, I, I'm seeing more and more of patient reported outcome measures being used to, I suppose, quantify treatments. What do you think has inspired that insight in the community of researchers? Well, I think Cochrane's got something to do yeah. with it. The way Cochrane has em empowered consumers or patient involvement in research, I, I think, you know, that's been a powerful catalyst for um, promoting the voice of patients. And then, of course, I would say it, it has to be Dame Sally and, you know, in 2006, the, 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 the new NIHR strategy, Best Research for Best Health, where she very clearly put patients at the centre, and not just patients as participants in research, although that was part of it, but patients as um, uh, 
colleagues we need to involve in identifying research questions, helping us to design the most appropriate outcomes, etc., etc. So I think the spirit of that paper has been embodied uh, in research throughout the National Institute of Health Research, where patient and public engagement now is seen of paramount importance yeah. at, at all stages of research. Um, so I, I think Cochrane possibly was one of the leaders in getting that sort of started. And in fact, uh, Maxine Witten, who you uh, uh, is at this meeting, I mean, that's that's how we both met was at Cochrane. Yeah. And Maxine then became involved in um, in leading the Cochrane Review in Vitiligo and updating it, and has has been involved in designing a trial using handheld ultraviolet light for Vitiligo. So, so if, you, if I trace a lot of my first sort of uh, collaborative contacts with patients and the public, a lot of it did come from Cochrane. They were way ahead of things, and I think they they, they, they do have uh, a, a lot of credit should be given to them for the way uh, people like Ian Chalmers promoted um, the co-production of reviews with patients and the public. So one, one last question. Mm -hmm. If you were, were transported back to the very beginning of your career, what one piece of advice would you would you give to yourself before embarking on this? I, I think um, to, to trust yourself, to find, to, 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 to start to know yourself and to feel comfortable in your skin and not to be ashamed of your upbringing or who you are, to identify who you are and, um, and you know, for me, for example, I came from a mining community in South Wales um, and I didn't know, for example, what it was to be Welsh, because in Wales everyone else is Welsh. <laughs> so, but, but by coming to London, I realised, well, there is something different about me. Or I started to understand, well, I do like music quite a lot, and I have to find a place in my life for music and art, as well as chess medicine. So uh, I think my advice would be... Um, is is to to really try and understand yourself mm. before you can sort of help others and to listen to the um, song if you like inside you and to because the Aborigines they, they, they have a very um, um, clear sort of understanding about your your life song and, and each person has to find their life song and I think it's a question of listening out and identifying what your life song is and then you understand say for example I mean many people and many times in my career I have felt rather stupid amongst clever people yeah. and um, and they were very clever people and they were clever on me in for example complex statistical methods but then I realised well hang on why am I in this influential position I, I thought well I do have good qualities emotional intelligence I'm good at sharing things I'm good at getting groups to work together and they don't so we all have different things, and I think it's a yeah. question of identifying, well, actually, even though you may not feel that clever yourself and you feel you're sort of winging it a lot of the time, um, actually, you're there for a reason, because you do have certain skills of being average at lots of things, for example, and you do need those sort of people as well as people who are exceptionally good in one or two things. So I think my advice is, when you're starting off, is try not to be too influenced by the people around you. Think about who you are, are you comfortable in your own skin? And that takes a while to identify and then to, to, to play to those strengths. Because if you end up in a job where um, you're not really being yourself, being true to yourself, you're not happy. So I think the key is, is to listen and be true to yourself. 
thank you very much for your time. It was very interesting and inspiring interview. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Trainees Project, go to uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees or follow us on Twitter at Cochrane UK. Thank you. This podcast was presented by Rachel, produced by Jack and narrated by me, Farrow. Join us next time.